So throughout the book of Colossians, we've seen that Paul has a primary concern with the maturity of the church in Colossae. He tells us as he begins the book that he is burdened to see them come to completion, to maturity in Christ. And in, in view in particular, he has this false teaching that would steer them away from what they have in Christ and thereby steer them away from the maturity and the completion, the fullness that they have in Christ. And so we just saw this last week as we've finished up that section where Paul is dealing with the false teaching, he still has maturity in view as he's trying to debunk, he's trying to refute that which would steer them away from maturity. So now the question becomes, what does maturity actually look like? Where is it truly found and what would it present as? So on the side of my house, if you've been to my house, you know we have this kind of garden that's between the sidewalk and the wall of the house. And we, when we first moved there, we know we inherited these plants from the people before us. And there was this one plant in particular that was just, it would grow so much and it would just make this massive, messy bush of leaves on the ground. And for the first couple years, we didn't exactly know what it was until we realized it was a vine. And so what did we do? We went out and bought a trellis and we wove the, the vine along the trellis and now it grows up Still not terribly well, but it grows up on the side of the house now. You see, it wasn't until I knew what the mature plant would, would look like, what it was supposed to look like, that I knew how to actually help it get there. And so Paul, likewise, he wants us to know what maturity looks like. Rather than merely negatively sort of correcting against the false teaching, he wants to give us a profile, a, a picture, a portrait of what actual maturity in Christ looks like. And his message to us, if we were to boil it down, his message to us in this passage is this. Live as the new community you are in Christ. This, the sermon in a sentence is to live as the new community that we are in Christ or through Christ. As we talked about last week, uh, Jesus gives us a new identity. Uh, we don't want the false teachers to commit identity theft against us. And so what does Paul say? He says, you actually have a new identity in Christ, and that a new identity results in a new mentality, a new mindset that ushers forth in a new morality. And so we're going to use that kind of, uh, th those threefold concepts to break down our sermon today, that we have a new identity that results in a new mentality bringing forth a new morality. Okay? And all this is going to show us the message that we are to live as the new community we are in Christ. So first, let's look at our new identity. The first idea is that we are a new community in Christ. Before we're to live as a new community, we first have to realize that we are a new community in Christ. And the first theme here I want us to note is this idea that we are a new creation, a new humanity in Christ. Paul uses this language in verses 9 and 10 where he talks about uh, that we've put off the old self and we've put on the new self. And he'll speak likewise uh, in similar language in Ephesians 4 and Romans 6. He uses this language that the ESV translates self. Some translations, I think like the King James and the older translations would say the new man. Okay? This is actually a word though that can just simply mean humanity. Humanity at large, not just an individual person, like a new self-individual, but you have put off the old humanity that was in Adam, as we saw, 
And you have now, with the new Adam, with Jesus, you've put on a new way of being human, a new humanity. Uh, Paul uses this language in Ephesians, for example, Ephesians 2.15, where again, the ESV says the new self, or it says the new man, and it says that in Christ, he is creating one new man, combining, bringing in both the Jew and the Gentile. So clearly there, we see it's not just individuals when Paul says this new self, but it's, it's a group of people. It's a new humanity, Jew and Gentile being brought together. And so I think when you, when you read new self in Paul's writings, retranslate that in your mind as new humanity. And this, this is a part of the new creation where there is the old Adam and an old humanity with a, with a fallen order, the fallen creation. And now in the new Adam, we are being made new again. Paul also uses this language uh, in 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, and Colossians here of Christ as the head of a body. You'll notice we came across that in chapter 219 where Christ is the head of the body. Or here he talks about how we've been called into one body, verse 15. So the image there is, as they would have understood human biology in those days, the head was sort of the organizing principle of the body. It was, it was the thing that an, they saw as animating the body and as giving life to the body, giving nourishment, and the body would grow from the head. Um, and so what Paul is saying here is not only is Christ the head in terms of the authority of the body, we see him doing that as well in Ephesians, but here in, in chapter 219, he talks about the, how the head actually nourishes the body. It's a source of life and growth for the body. And so just as Christ is then the head of a body, we picture this picture of like a man, and Christ is the head of that body, the church is then the body. So this is also language, this is imagery of Christ creating a new human, a new humanity, that we are then a part, we are incorporated and joined into this new humanity that is in conformity with our head, which is Christ, the true Adam. These are all images that go together. Christ is creating a new humanity. We also see this in verse 10, where when he describes the new self or the new humanity, look at, look at the passage with me. He says that this new self, this new humanity, is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Where do we see that language before? Image along with creation or creator. That comes from Genesis. These are the words, uh, the same words that are used in the Greek Translation of the Old Testament, the exact same words that Paul is using here. It's an allusion to this idea of being made in the image of God. So as Christ uh, is making a new humanity that's being renewed into an image of its creator, of Christ, we're being conformed into Christ-likeness. And so we are made, originally, humanity was made in the image of God, but on account of sin, that image has been severely marred to the point of being nearly unrecognizable. We're not who we were meant to be as humans apart from Christ because of sin. But Christ now, he comes and becomes, a, he, God the Son becomes a human being in the person of Christ. He then is the perfect man. He became the image of God for us. As we read earlier in this book, Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, same language. And so now as believers, as we are joined to him, our head, we are his body, we are conformed to Christ, and as we're conformed to Christ, we are actually conformed back into the image of God that we were always meant to be. As we are conformed into Christ's image, we are conformed back into the image as God always intended. We are made more and more like Christ. Paul has this theme elsewhere. For example, in Romans 8, 29, 
he says, for those whom God foreknew, those that God knew in advance, he predestined to what end? He predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son, that Christ would be the firstborn among many brothers, that they would share in that inheritance. 1 Corinthians 15, 49, where Paul compares Jesus as a new Adam to the old Adam. Adam and he says, just as in Adam we get death, so in Jesus we get resurrection. Well, what, the, what, the, when, what then does he say that resurrection is for us? Just as we bore the image of the man of dust, that is Adam, we shall also bear the image of this man of heaven, Christ. Or in Ephesians 4, which is a very parallel passage to this one in Colossians, there likewise he says that we have put off the old self, the old humanity, which belonged to our former manner of life and its uh, corruptions through deceitful desires, and we are now to be renewed in the spirit of our mind, same language as here, to put on the new self, which again is created after the likeness of God. This is in Genesis. It said that I'm going to create man in my image and in my likeness. And this likeness is in true righteousness and holiness. You guys, uh, anyone listen to Switchfoot growing up? Or maybe, they, maybe you still listen to Switchfoot? They had, a, they had an album or a, in a song called A New Way to Be Human. And that's the idea here. Paul is presenting to us a new way to be human in Christ. C.S. Lewis uh, puts it this way. To become, a new, to become new men means losing what we now call ourselves. Yet the more we get of Christ, the more truly ourselves we actually become. In that sense, our real selves are all awaiting for us in Christ. Who, what does it mean to be a new, we're, we're actually going to be a new humanity in Christ. And that new humanity is actually where we find our true selves, who we were, who we were always meant to be. And I think this is really helpful in our moment as a society right now. Because what do we see in our society? Right now we, are, we, we place this high value, in America in particular, on being true to oneself on being authentic, right? And we are told in order to find our true selves and to be authentic, we have to look inside. Look inside yourself to find out who you truly are. But what do we find when we look inside? We find sin. When we look to ourselves inside, that's not a good route to go because our hearts are wicked and out of them, Jesus says, flow all manner of wickedness. Our true self, then, is not to be found by looking inside and seeing what we just happen to find there at the present moment, but by looking to Christ. The true us is who God originally made us to be prior to sin, and thus we are only truly our real intended selves as we are recreated and restored in Christ. In fact, we will never be our true selves until our old self actually dies. To the person outside of Christ, then, if you want to be the real you, your current you, maybe the you that you think you really are, that has to die. As Jesus said in Mark 8, he said, for whoever would save his life, whoever wants to hold on to his life as he thinks it ought to be, what he values, he's going to lose it. But the one who actually loses his life, that actually gives this one up, is actually then, for the gospel's sake, going to save it. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. 
And so many people in our society right now are desperately searching for who they are. People want to know who they are. They're looking for answers. Who am I? But the thing is, it's creating a lot of psychological uh, disruption, dysfunction. Because as human beings, we were not meant to carry the weight of trying to determine our own identity. Like, that's not who we were created to be. We were not created to sort of exist and come up with a sense of who I am. That is a massive existential burden that we cannot carry on our own. And we're reaping the consequences of it. And so what do we do? We agonize and we feel restless trying to figure ourselves out. As Augustine said, God, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And so that is our call to you, if you are not here as a believer this morning, is to come and find your rest in Christ. Find your identity in him, your true self as intended in him. But not only does Paul want to say that we are new creations in Christ, as new people, as new humans in Christ, but he also wants us to see that this is a corporate reality. There were also a new society in Christ. So, so notice, um, and this is also one of the problems with translating itself, it individualizes it. Because notice, when Paul is addressing us here, um, he's not just concerned with individual transformation. Of course he's concerned that the particular individuals are transformed. But notice the attention that Paul places on social sins. Sins that have to do with how we relate to one another. And when he talks about the virtues that we're supposed to put on, they also have to do with how we relate to each other. He actually uses that language, one another or each other, four times in this passage. Don't lie to one another. And that's this one another is repeated. So we get relational sin. So when Paul paints a portrait, it's almost like when you watch the news and sometimes maybe someone's gone missing or someone's committed a crime and on the news, what do they do? The authorities sort of put out a description of someone or they, there's a sketch artist that puts out a portrait. So here, this is Paul's portrait of what characterizes the old man. We get two portraits. What characterizes the old man, our former manner of life, and what characterizes the, the sketch of our new humanity in Christ. So on the one hand, the, the old humanity, we see the, 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 these relational sins. It's sexual immorality. We might individualize that in our culture with the proliferation of pornography, but sex, sexual sins are always relational, and they wouldn't have any category of individual sexual sin like that. It's impurity, it's passion, it's evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, lying to one another. All these things that are infecting our relationships. The virtues are compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance toward one another, forgiving each other, love, harmony, peacefulness, and thankfulness. And so what else we get is in verse 11 is the solution then, the remedy, is that in this new humanity, we are all one in Christ. We clearly see that this new humanity is not just individual because in verse 11 he says here, that is in this new humanity, there is not Greek, Jew, circumcised and uncircumcision, etc. Christ is all and he's all to all of us. We all have Christ, and Christ is all we need for all of us. We are one in Christ. Our social differences are relativized and made as nothing compared to what we share and have in common in Christ. And so not only are we new creations, we're a new society. This, this, this is then what actual 
transformation looks like, according to Paul. When Paul thinks about what it means to be remade into the image of God, it's not just individual transformation, but it's a transformation of a community, of a people. And so this requires, then, not only that we embrace a new way of thinking about ourselves as believers, like I'm a new self, I'm died, I've died with Christ, I've raised with Christ, we have to embrace that mindset, of course, but this also requires that we have a new mindset regarding belonging and relating to one another. That we, part of the transformation that the gospel works is, a, is transforming a people, a community. That God saves us not as mere islands that kind of just exist on their own, but he saves us into and as a people. And the transformation the regeneration and sanctification that God is bringing about is not merely the transformation of ourselves as individuals, but it is the growth. Sanctification is the growth of one another as a church, that we participate in this project of not only seeing ourselves grow, but our relationships with one another grow, and we see each other grow. That's the mindset that we ought to have. And so that's our identity, that we are a new community in Christ. Now let's look at our new mentality that this produces, that we are to consider ourselves then a new community in Christ. If we are a new community in Christ, we ought to consider ourselves as such. And you see this built into the logic of Paul's way of arguing here. You see, he essentially argues to the Colossians, become what you already are. This is who you are, become that. So what he does is he bases commands on things that are already realities, or to use grammatical terms, he bases the imperatives on the indicatives. The indicatives are the things that are already true. And he says, these things are already true, so imperative. Command, do this. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 3, he says that our old selves have died. And he's, he said this earlier in chapter 2, verse 20. He's going to talk about how the old self has been put off. But in verse 3... You have died. You're dead, believer. You've died in Jesus. And therefore, you get to verse 5. So, put to death. Wait, but I'm already dead, right? If I'm dead, how do I put to death? What is he saying? Become what you already are. You are dead, so put to death the things that belong to that old self that is dead. Or likewise, on the positive side, he says in verse 10 that you have put on the new self. And so what does he say in verse 12? Put on, then, these virtues, compassion, uh, kindness, humility, etc. You have put on the new self, so put on the sort of activities, the attributes that characterize the new self. Or in chapter 3.12, he also says that he appeals to them. Uh, when he gives these commands, he says, as God's chosen, set-apart people, the ones that God has put his love on, that he set his affection on. And this is language that is reminiscent of how God refers to Israel as God's chosen, holy, set-apart people. They're to be holy as God is holy. And so God is, and Paul is saying then, as the true Israel, as the new Israel, this is why you are to live this way. He's always commanding them based on something that's already true about them. Become what you already are. In other words, we're not in a position of having to sort of strive in order to make these things true about ourselves. Rather, we are empowered to strive knowing that these things are already true of us. Look at verse 6 and 7 with me. 
where Paul says, on account of these things, these, these evil practices, these things that are earthly in you, it's on account of these that God's wrath is coming. And it's in these, too, that you once walked. You lived in these things when you were living in them. Just down the road from here, this way, down Morgan, there is a restaurant called Zeb's Diners. Has anyone ever been to Zeb's? I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> it's not great, okay? Maybe you like it, and that's okay. But Zeb's is like this, I don't know, mom and pop kind of shop, restaurant. Uh, it, 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 let's just say it has an 80s theme to it, but it's not intentional, Okay, everything in there, if you go in there, maybe now you want to go there, everything has an 80s theme. Uh, you walk in there, and I don't think it's been remodeled since the 80s. Uh, the, the waiter, the, 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 there's, a, there's a guy there who kind of manages the shop, and a lot of the workers there, they're very much dressed like they're from the 80s. They have hairstyles from the 80s. And I don't know what it is about 80s hairstyles, but those are the ones that seem to stick. Once you get an 80s hairstyle, it's like stuck there. Like they don't move on, okay? And they play 80s music. And I'm not complaining about that, because we all love 80s music, right? Okay, but it's this 80s-themed restaurant that's not intended to be 80s-themed. It just happens to be that way. And so what are they doing? When you walk into Zeb's, they're living in the past. They're living an old form of life. They're stuck in the 80s. And Paul is saying something similar to the Colossians. He's saying, listen, don't live in the past. These, these sins, they belong to that former manner of life. This, this lifestyle, this is the lifestyle that brings God's wrath upon it. This is a lifestyle that, that once characterized you, but no more. And this isn't you anymore. This, not, this isn't your relationship with God anymore, one of wrath, one that's characterized by these sins. This is what you've been saved from. And so again, he's appealing to what is already true about them to convince and to persuade and encourage them to live who they already are in Christ. And this mindset, then, is the means of renewal. This is how we are transformed. He appeals to them in chapter 3, verse 9, by saying, seeing that you have put off the old self and put on the new self. When he wants to give, him an, give them an argument about why they shouldn't lie to one another anymore, verse 9, he says, why? Because you have put off the old and you've put on the new. That's his argument. Have this mindset that you are dead and now alive. In verses 1 through 4 from last week, what did Paul say? He says, seek the things above. Set your mind on the heavenly realities of who you already are in Christ. Verse 10 here, he says that this new self is being renewed in knowledge. That as we have this new mindset, this new knowledge of, of, of what God has done for us in Christ, we are renewed, and this is exactly what we saw in the parallel passage of Ephesians 4, where the new self there is likewise renewed in the spirits of our mind. Author Tim Challies uh, puts it this way, Paul tells us to fight against sin from a position of strength. Know what you are in Christ. In Christ, we have died unto sin. In Christ, we have been raised again to newness of life. In Christ crucified, we have been set free from sin's dominion and continue to die to sin so that we experience the death of sin in the death of Christ. Sin may assail us, but it cannot master us. In Christ, we are assured of God's help in striving against sin. Though we may fail and lose various skirmishes against sin, because of our union and communion with Christ, 
we have by faith the promise of ultimate victory and final deliverance, which, more than anything else, gives us hope and sustenance in the daily fight against sin. As, as John Owen said, we looked at last week, it gives us power to stay in the chariot because we know the battle is ours. Chalice concludes, the only sin fatal to our cause then is unbelief. And so we have a new identity giving us a new mentality and that ushers forth in a new morality. We live differently. We are a new community, so we consider ourselves a new community and now we are then to live as a new community. And Paul gives these commands of putting off and putting on. We get these repeated throughout the section here. Put off the things that do with the old man, put on the things of the new humanity. And this language of put off and put on is actually the idea of undressing and dressing. It's like taking off your clothes and putting on new clothes. I used to work at a a Bible camp, a summer camp, as some of you know, and one year I got this great idea. We used to, at the end of the week, you know, you'd have leftovers after these meals, and we used to call the leftovers memories. So at the end of the week, we'd always have a day with what we called memories. So you got to remember all the food you ate throughout the week as a nice way of uh, kind of dressing up the idea of leftovers. But I got this idea. You guys know the game Twister where you got like red spots and blue spots and you're all like twisted up? So I get this idea with my cabin. We had cabin time where I had to come up with an activity for my cabin to play Memories Twister. And what I meant by that was every single square was like a different leftover. So rather than like right hand blue, it was like left foot mashed potatoes. And we played a whole, I'm pretty sure I won. Um, but we played this whole game of, of just like totally covered. It was nasty. It was so gross. I thought this like as a college student, I'm like, this is the best idea ever. And by the time I was done with it, I'm like, this was terrible. Like the kids loved it. But then I'm like, how am I going to clean this up? I got leftovers all over the grass. And we ended up running it all into the lake nearby. So there's like just floating food in the lake for a couple of days. And I'm sure the lifeguards hated me for that. But man, when I was done with that, I was smelly. You got like spaghetti sauce on you mixed with all the, it was nasty. What all I wanted to do is, you know, get that clothes off and, you know, take a shower and put on some new clothes. And maybe you've done that where you work out and it just feels great to take a shower, right? And get some clean clothes on. That's the idea here that Paul is like, we're stripping ourselves of that nasty old self. The memories twister, all the mashed potatoes and spaghetti, whatever, get it off. That's not you anymore the disgusting nature of sin, and we clean ourselves with new, fresh clothes in Christ. And so on the one hand, he says, put off those things that are now inconsistent with who you are in Christ. That's what he's saying in the first set of verses here, 5 through 11, the first paragraph, put off those things. And I really want to focus on the main command, which is to kill our sin. In the ESV, it says, put to death. The old language of the King James was to mortify, and so John Owen, the mortification of sin. But kill your sin. It's dead, so kill it. Now, what exactly does it mean to put our sin to death? Let me give you five uh, practical ideas of how we can actually put sin to death. The first is to hate your sin. You don't kill your friends, right? You don't kill something that you like and cherish. So the first thing in killing sin is to view sin as Christ views it, with utter hatred and disgust. Sin is not your friend. Sin actually aims to destroy you. And more importantly than that, sin is repulsive to our God. 
that we love. Secondly, view your old self as already dead. View your old self as dead and view yourself as resurrected from sin's grip. Without faith that you have any power over sin, you you will never muster the resolve and the perseverance you need to actually fight sin with any sincerity. John Piper says this, Take heart from the truth that your old sinful you is decisively already dead. This means the mortal blow to your old man has been struck, and his final obliteration is certain. Number three, set your aim not merely on hemming in or pacifying your sin. Don't just try to, you know, put it in a fence, lock it up, but utterly destroy your sin. Aim to utterly ruin it. Aim to kill. Shoot to kill, as as you might say. Don't just shoot to injure it. Don't tolerate your sin or keep it as a prisoner or a pet. Don't be like Saul in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 15, who when he was charged to defeat the Amalekites and he did, what does he do? He doesn't actually kill Agag as he was supposed to, King Agag. He keeps Agag around and be more like like Samuel, right, who comes in, rebukes uh, Saul and hacks Agag to pieces. Hack your sin to pieces. Utterly kill your sin. Realize what's at stake, number four. As John Owen says, kill sin or it will be killing you. Know that you are in a battle. That if you, if you were assigned, like maybe you were a secret agent and you're assigned to kill someone, you wouldn't go do that lackadaisically, right? If you are going in to attempt to kill something, it's going to fight back. And so know you're in a battle. Know that sin's going to fight back. And it's going to be a death fight. It's going to be a fight to the death. Either you're going to kill it or it's going to kill you. And that relates to point number five, which is realizing that killing sin is not optional. It's not an optional extra for the true believer. As Paul says in Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That will be the wages of death. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Such sins, Paul says, characterize those on whom God's wrath is coming. God will pour out his wrath on those who are given over to these sins. And so on the one hand, Paul can say, put off that stuff. That's your former manner of life. Kill the sin. On the other hand, he says, put on the things that then characterize the new humanity that the gospel produces. And so I want to look at four things that we see. We, for, the first one was killing sin. Now the other four, for a total of five, is to see the, the, the things that the gospel itself produces in this new humanity. The first we see is that we are to forgive each other. So look at verse 12 and 13 with me. The gospel produces a community, a new community, that's characterized by forgiveness. Put on, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, this true Israel, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord Jesus has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. As we have been forgiven in the gospel, so we are to forgive others. It's like the parable of the unforgiving servant, right? You remember the, the parable that Jesus gives in Matthew 18, where he tells of a man who is forgiven of a, of a debt, uh, and then it was a great debt, right? And then he goes out and he you know, holds these people up against the wall, asking for their little small amount that, that they owe him. 
And the man is, is locked up because even though he was forgiven much, he was not willing to forgive others. And so what is unforgiveness? But in some sense, it's us not wanting to let go of things. It's us wanting to get even. When we feel that someone has wronged us, we want to either get back at them to sort of level things out, to even the score, or if we're not going to take the step of actually getting back at them, we at least are going to become resentful as a way of like holding on to it and not letting them off the hook, right? Unforgiveness, at the root of unforgiveness, is wanting to get even, it seems. It's as if we have like this scale in our mind where if someone sins against me, we need to keep things even and keep things just and fair. But in the gospel, our sins have been forgiven in Christ. And so things will now never be even because I've been forgiven of a debt far greater than anyone ever owes me. Our sin against God amounts to immeasurably more than any sin that will ever and could ever be committed against us. And these sins have been forgiven in Christ. And so I've been forgiven of a debt far more than what I will ever be called to forgive someone else of. So no matter how much we are sinned against, the scales will always be immeasurably tipped in our favor. Those who have sinned against us are therefore not in our debt. We don't hold people in our debt because they've sinned against us, but rather we are debtors to God's grace, which frees us then to extend that same sort of grace and forgiveness to others. Thirdly, uh, the, the attribute of this new community is unity, is unity. And we read this in Colossians 3, 14 through 15. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that Christ supplies, the peace of Christ, let, it, let that rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. You've been made one body. And so th- this, this command here, what does it assume? It assumes that there's going to be friction that there are going to be people in the church who are different than us. When he's writing to them, we're going to rub shoulders. There's going to be differences. And whereas many today might want to look for a church uh, filled with other people who are just like them, maybe they look just like them or they're at the exact same stage of life, they want people they can relate to, so it goes. Rather than that, the ideal New Testament church is one with all different types of people. As we saw in in Colossians 3, Jew and Greek, slave, free, barbarian, Scythian, etc. And so today you might think of, uh, you know, a church that's filled with people of different age groups. They're not all your own age. Or different genders, different ethnicities, people of different economic statuses, with different levels of education, different political sensibilities, able body and disabled people, single, married, widowed, divorced, etc. It's a diverse group. And there are actually incredible benefits to that diversity. We actually learn from each other. We stretch with each other. But of course, those differences can also create difficulties. Paul commands us to bear with one another. That assumes that living in a community with others won't always be easy, that there are actually going to be times where we have to put up with people. I'm going to have to bear with people, right? In other words, there's going to be people who annoy us and people who frustrate us. There's even going to be people who sin against us. Because Paul tells us that we have to forgive one another, which of course means that people are going to sin against me. And so if you leave a church every time someone offends you, or or you're looking for the perfect church where everyone's going to get along perfectly and everyone looks just like you, bummer, you're never going to find it. (laughs) 
But what does Paul say? He says we are actually to be ruled by the peace that Christ brings us. And that's a peace that we have because Christ says, as he says, he's made us all members of one body. We're unified in the gospel. That's what we have in common. That's what holds us together despite differences and despite the ways that we hurt each other and, and, and frustrate each other. The gospel holds us together. Fourthly, we let the gospel make its home among us. So we, we put sin to death. We forgive each other. We're unified. Fourthly, we let the gospel make its home among us. I like this language. It's, it, it's, so, it's so vivid. In verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell. Let it reside. Let it make its home in you or among you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. He uses this language, word of Christ, which in the context of the book, I take to be the gospel, the word that is about Christ, the message about Christ and what he has done, particularly at its heart being the gospel. And he says that we are to teach and admonish one another, and we do this notice as we sing to one another. Have you ever thought about that? That, we actually, uh, that singing is actually a way that you are serving your fellow members. Singing together is a way that you minister and you are letting the gospel dwell among the church. It's one of the ways that Paul says that we let the gospel make its home among us richly by singing to one another. And this is why, as Nick and I were, Nick Matula and I were talking about this, is, this is why, for example, um, as a, maybe as opposed to some settings where you find they dim all the lights so it's really dark and it kind of feels individualized, or the band plays really loudly where you can't even hear each other singing, and even to speak of it as a band, kind of assuming like it's a concert or it's a performance, we shouldn't even, in some ways, we shouldn't even think of this at like the folks up here as the worship team. We are all the worship team. They're simply the music leaders, right? Because what are we doing? We are worshiping God together, and as we sing to one another, we are actually allowing the gospel to be the song that gets stuck in each other's minds. I like that language of dwell. It's like, a, like I said, a song getting stuck in your head. Have you guys seen, there's a, there's a viral video right now about a kid who talks about how much he loves corn. Have you guys seen that? Is that just me? I've seen that. There's this kid and he's like, it's corn. And he's like, it's got the juice. And like they made this whole, like, uh, what do you call that? Like an auto-tune song. The millennials will all know this. Um, he's climbing in your windows. Okay, and if you don't know that, you're probably not a millennial, okay? <laughs> yeah, hide your kids. <laughs> but uh, I won't repeat the rest of it. But um, there's these auto-tuned, like where someone has an interview in the news and then someone makes it into a song. There's, similarly, there's this kid at a fair or something who's eating corn. He talks about how much he loves corn. Anyways, I saw this video of this song about corn and it got stuck in my head and as I'm going through the house I'm like it's got the juice like and Anne's like what are you doing like this song stuck in my head and that's what we're supposed to do we're supposed to get the gospel song stuck in each other's heads we do that by singing it to one another even as we gather together so the gospel goes with us we need that throughout the week fifthly lastly is that we are thankful the gospel produces a thankful community we see this idea of thankfulness repeated throughout the passage. It's at the end of verse 15, and be thankful. It's in verse 16. We sing with thankfulness in our hearts, and then when we do everything, whatever it is, word or deed, we're doing it with thanksgiving. This is a theme, a subtle theme throughout the book of Colossians, that, that, that when Paul thinks of a mature believer, he thinks of a thankful believer. 
And of course, thankfulness assumes that salvation is by grace, right? We don't come together. When we come together as a church, I'm not going like, hey, Joby, good job believing this week. You're really doing good, you know, being a saved person by the gospel. Or congratulations, Brad. Way to go, man. You've done it. Hats off to you. No, what do we do? We thank God for salvation, right? The fact that the New Testament epistles, um, by and large, are very few exceptions where, where the New Testament actually thanks a person. Most of the time, even when someone else is doing something commendable, it's always, I thank God as I think about what that person is doing. Why? Because there's an understanding that anything that we do is a product of God's grace in us. To, to, to have this idea of thankfulness assumes that we are recipients. It assumes that, that, what God is, that what's happening is something that God is doing. We don't congratulate each other. We thank God. And so in the New Testament, this is what we see. We see that the salvation that we have, which is by grace, ought to produce a thankful community, a community marked by thankfulness. And so, again, we are to live as the new community that we already are in Christ. We have a new identity. We are a new community in Christ. That gives us a new mentality. We are to consider ourselves a new community in Christ. And then we live with a new morality, living now as Christ's new community. And as we come to the Lord's Supper, there are, there's, the Lord's Supper is, has such rich symbolism. And one of the things I want to highlight this week in particular is how the Lord's Supper is not just a picture of your individual salvation, if you're a believer, but it's also a picture of our collective salvation, that we are one body because we have one salvation. In 1 Corinthians 10, uh, Paul says that because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Some churches actually reflect this by having one loaf of bread. Even for us, we have the same bread. We're all eating the same bread. What does that communicate? Whereas you walk outside of these doors and you go into society and there are stratifications and different classes and hostility and you know, some people make more than others or what have you. There are all these differences we see. When it comes to the church and when it comes to the gospel and it comes to our meal together that depicts the gospel, we are one. We all have the same salvation. There's neither Greek nor Jew, etc., it speaks to what we have in common. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, there is one body and there is one spirit, just as you are called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, and we might say as well, one cup and one bread. And this is why in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul addresses the Lord's Supper pretty head-on, if you know that passage, the passage we recite every week, this is why when the Corinthians were practicing the Lord's Supper in a divisive way, where like the rich people were showing up first and they were gorging themselves and the poor people showed up later and didn't really have enough food, Paul said, like, Paul was livid with them. Why would he be so upset about, you know, they're still doing the Lord's Supper thing, right? But they're being divisive about how they did it. They were dividing up the body. Why, is, why does Paul take that so seriously? Why does Paul say when he talks about them partaking in an unworthy way, that was the way they were partaking in an unworthy way? by doing it in a divisive way. And he said, this is why some of you actually have gotten weak and ill and even died. Because our unity as a church is so important. The Lord's Supper is not merely a meal then of the individual, it's actually a meal of the church family. And this is a unity, as we've seen, that has been won by Christ. It's Christ who has made us this new humanity in the gospel. The, 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 the bread and the cup 
are, are these pictured promises of that salvation we have in his death for all those who believe. We are all one and have one salvation.